I can't say for sure, but I know that there's a really high chance that some people are doping. I still think that it's a relatively low percentage of pro triathletes. And there's a few reasons for that. One, the payoff in triathlon isn't that high. So I, from what I've heard, this stuff's really expensive. And most of us come from like age group backgrounds and we're like, I just want to see how good I can get. Hello, and welcome to the June 2nd, 2023 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I think that I made mention on this show of how I was forced to take a couple of months off from my own training earlier this year after I was diagnosed and treated for a melanoma on my leg, and then unfortunately had a few complications related to the surgery that necessitated my being unable to train. When I finally got back to it in late April, I was not really at all surprised to see how much fitness I had lost, but I was no less motivated to work as hard as I could to try and get it back. Now, I didn't really know what to expect, and I was careful to keep my expectations low, given the fact that, let's face it, I'm closer to 60 than 50 these days, and I know that this was unlikely to help me in my efforts to make it back to some semblance of what I was last season in the time frame that I had before my first race. After deferring out of Boulder 70.3, that was supposed to be my season opener, I am now three weeks away from what will end up being my first race of the year, the 70.3 in Mont-Tremblant, Quebec. And I am happy to be able to relate that while I am still a mere shadow of what I was when I showed up in Chattanooga last May, it isn't nearly as bad as I feared. When I first started my training again about six weeks ago, I decided to keep a journal on the process in order to note for myself how quickly things progressed, but also to be able to share with my own athletes and anyone else out there what kind of timeline to expect when you are faced with the kind of layoff that I was faced with in order to have a sense of when to expect you'll be back on track. So here is what things have looked and felt like over the past 45 or so days, for me anyways. On Monday, April 24th, my CTL was 35, and I went for my first run and did my first swim. What I found was that running was really painful and exhausting, and that time spent on my VASA trainer had been well spent. Swimming definitely felt better than expected, both in terms of feel for the water and fitness-wise, and I attribute that 100% to the work that I was able to do on my swim trainer, which was really about the only thing I was able to do while I was on the bench in my home. After a month and a half, I can definitely look back with a much clearer eye and see how things came back in a, a fairly predictable fashion. I'm sitting here today with the CTL now of 81, and swim pace and endurance were definitely the first to return. Running endurance came next, and running pace has just recently started to come back, although it's nowhere close to where I used to be able to run at. Bike fitness is coming, but man, is it taking a while, and bike power seems to just recently be starting to peek its eyes out and show up again, and I'm starting to be hopeful that maybe, just maybe, I'll be a little close to where I was before all of this began, at least with respect to biking, come June 25th. Now, I honestly have no idea what to expect going into this race, but I am trying very hard to be realistic. There's no way that I can expect to have the kind of result that I did in each of my races last year, and so I'm trying to refocus my attention on process rather than outcomes. 
Enjoy the day and the experience and just the whole atmosphere, something that maybe I don't always get to appreciate when I race recently. I'm also trying hard to practice what I preach with my own athletes who have had to manage their own injuries from time to time. Have patience with respect to the fact that it takes time to find your old self again. Be careful not to compare yourself now to who you were before your injury or layoff and give yourself grace to allow yourself to have bad days and be a shadow of what you once saw yourself as. By doing these things and by being mindful of the fact that in the grand scheme of things I am healthy and still doing the thing that I love, I've been able to muddle through this period and manage the tough days without too much discouragement. Whatever happens in three weeks from now, I'll be smiling at the finish line. You can be sure of that. Oh, and one last thing. Being unable to race my local race in Boulder next weekend has allowed me to sign up as a volunteer. And I encourage you all to try and give back to your fellow competitors in this way whenever you can, should you be unable to race. We all know how much we love those volunteers, so step up and be one yourself, if you can. On the show today... Life sport coach and former Olympic rower Juliet Hockman joins me for the medical mailbag when we will discuss the mysteries of inflammation. What exactly is it? Should we be concerned about it? And why is there so much press devoted to controlling it? Is inflammation friend or foe? And does it need to be aggressively managed? Or are we doing ourselves harm when we try? That conversation is coming up shortly. Later, I'm joined by Canadian professional triathlete and three-time third-place finisher at 70.3 events already in 2023, Jackson Laundrie. Jackson has been on the professional circuit for some time now and has had quite a bit of success. He shares with me some great insights from within the pro field, his thoughts on the Colin Chartier doping scandal, and what the future holds for his own career arc this season and beyond. Before all of that, I want to take a moment once again to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they could sign up to support this program and in doing so get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month. For North American subscribers at the $10 per month level of support, I also have a special thank you gift in the form of a pretty cool Boko Tridoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash podcast and become a supporter so that you can get access and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, I thank you in advance just for considering. It's time for the medical mailbag, which means I am joined by my friend and colleague, Juliet Hockman, former Olympic rower, current life sport coach and triathlete, world champion at the sprint and 70.3 distances. I could go on and on, but I won't. How are you, Juliet? I'm great. Thanks. How are you, Jeff? I'm well. I understand you're up in my native homeland vacationing on Vancouver Island. I am. I am. I'm up north in uh, Vancouver Island in a small town called Cumberland, where my husband and I are beating ourselves up daily on the mountain biking trails up here. I tell you, you can be as fit as you want as a triathlete, but that does not mean you're a good mountain biker. <laughs> no kidding. It's a whole different skill set. I, I feel the pain. Hopefully, you're not feeling too much pain from being unseated from the bike. Well, actually, this is really interesting because this is a very timely for the topic that we're talking about tonight. All right. Well, what is it? Bring it. All right. So I know that both me and a lot of your listeners are really curious about all of this, this discussion around inflammation and, you know, inflammation in one sense is really simple, right? You roll your ankle, you, you, you roll off a sidewalk the wrong way, your ankle swells up, 
you know, you got to ice it, you got to elevate, you got to do all the things. But it seems like there's a whole lot out there about inflammation, which we can't see, which doesn't necessarily present itself in the more obvious manner. And I'm kind of curious, you know, besides what we can actually see, sort of what is inflammation? How do we address it? Is it something that we need to worry about on a daily basis as endurance athletes if we can't really see it? It's a great question. And it's something that I think they undersell to us in medical school. It, it, it's brought up as a topic as, hey, we're going to talk about inflammation. And it, it gets complicated really, really fast. But I think what is underappreciated by most medical students and Truthfully, I think even by me as a resident for the longest time was just how important inflammation is in understanding human pathophysiology. If we're going to go back really just to the very beginning of the question, which is what is inflammation? I think we need to understand that inflammation is part of our evolutionary adaptation to stress. Inflammation is one of the things that maintains our physiologic processes in what we call normostasis. So every single day, our bodies are exposed to all manner of stresses. Those stresses can be physical. You went out and you went mountain biking today. They can be environmental. Uh, today was an interesting day here in Colorado. Started off really warm. Then it became overcast very suddenly. Temperature dropped dramatically. We had violent thunderstorms. Some places in the world, it could be extremely cold. It could be extremely hot. Other stresses can be psychological. All manner of things are happening to try and knock our very finely tuned physiologic processes off kilter. And in many cases, the response to those things going awry is a response that is termed an inflammatory response. So what happens is, and this is very much the case for whenever we have an infection, anytime that we are susceptible to some kind of bacteria or a fungus or a virus, something gets into our bodies, the first line of defense is recognition of the foreign invader followed by an inflammatory response. So inflammation is on the whole, an adaptation to all of these things that are going on around us and within us to try and knock physiological processes out of whack. In the inflammatory response is something that has been, that has evolved to kind of put things back in order. The problem is that left unchecked, the inflammatory response can cause a lot of damage because the same way that it can kill a bacteria, it can also kill our own cells. So that's a kind of a short version of what the inflammatory response is. Let's get into the weeds just a little bit. So the inflammatory response is, in essence, a vital component of our physiology to maintain health and well-being. Anytime that we are injured, anytime that we are sick, anytime that we are under those stresses that I mentioned, the inflammatory response kicks in as a means of fighting off illness, of removing and repairing so removing damaged tissue and then allowing for the repair of injured tissue to restore normal tissue. It also is involved in allowing for our uh, processes to get back into normal balance. So if you are exposed to environmental conditions that, that, that cause stress, the inflammatory response will kick in to try and re restore the, that normal balance. So a very complicated cascade of chemical processes involving a host of different cells, the, the vast majority of which comprise what we think of as the immune system. So the immune system is kind of the 
home for the inflammatory response. The inflammatory response is critical for allowing for us to get back to that normal state. But as I said, left unchecked can cause damage. And so we know that, as you said, when you roll your ankle, rolling the ankle is essentially a small tear in the ligaments of the supporting structures of the ankle. And so immediately you end up with the inflammatory response in that area, which is a combination of swelling, heat, because there's more blood flow into the area, as well as um, capillary permeability that results in fluid coming into the area, that's the swelling, and then you have pain. And the pain is is defensive. It, it obviously is not pleasant, but it's defensive so that it keeps you from actually continuing to walk or use that injured ankle. And then over time, the inflammatory cells move in, they start getting rid of any injured tissue that's there and then allows for the healing process to then continue. And then the inflammatory cells will move out and everything gets back to normal. So that's a great example of an injury resulting in an inflammatory response where things work the way they're supposed to. If, however, you have a tendon that gets injured, that's not a good example because tendinopathies are not generally inflammatory. But let's say you have a, a joint that gets injured, not not so much the ankle as a ligament, but maybe you have an injury to the cartilage within the ankle. Then you have an inflammatory process that doesn't go so well because cartilage doesn't heal so well. And so then you can end up with a chronic inflammatory response. And so these inflammatory cells are in there. They keep trying to get rid of the damaged cartilage, but no new cartilage is growing back. And so there's this continuous damage being caused by the inflammatory themselves themselves. And you end up with this chronic inflammatory response. And eventually you can end up with arthritis of the affected joint. So that's a, a, a a very simplified example of how a chronic inflammatory response can result in a disease process. But there are so many more complex ways that the immune system and that chronic inflammatory response can result in illness. So we have a host of autoimmune diseases, things like lupus, things like rheumatoid arthritis, things like scleroderma, a host of different autoimmune diseases that can come about because the immune system, as opposed to looking for damaged tissue or looking for invaders suddenly for some unknown reason starts to attack native host tissue that is healthy. And as a result, that da- that it causes untold amounts of damage in this chronic inflammatory response, which results in these kinds of chronic illnesses. And as we age, interestingly enough, the inflammatory response is in a heightened sense of activity. And so researchers have coined this phrase called inflammaging, where they are queuing into this idea that as we age, our inflammatory system is just by nature, by the fact that we are getting older, the inflammatory response is just more on all of the time. And this heightened inflammatory, not really a response, but this heightened inflammatory state that becomes more pronounced as we get older actually causes changes to our bodies, the most significant of which actually is the muscles. And we see this in older individuals who have wasting away of their muscles if they're not using them. It is thought now to be related to this ongoing inflammatory state. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. It's like, I hope that was, I hope that was something that was something you could follow. Let me know if I lost you. Follow it. And I guess that, you know, if I could bring you back from the weeds a little bit um, and I mean, for, so for the vast majority of 
athletes who are involved in endurance activities or individuals who are involved in endurance activities, not necessarily the um, small proportion who have scleroderma or um, lupus or some of the other diseases that you mentioned, you know, what does this look like, I guess, for us? And we're not talking so much about the rolled ankle, which we can see and we can address, but we're talking about the internal inflammation that may occur as a result of the factors you talked about, environmental stress, et cetera. Um, how it, how does that impact us as individuals who put ourselves under quite a lot of physical stress every day through our athletic endeavors? Well, we have to be comfortable with the idea that inflammation is a double-edged sword. It has a good side and a bad side. The good side is actually very good, as we've talked about it. it. It protects us. It helps us. The bad side can be very bad, but it turns out that one of the things that sort of hedges your bets is exercise. So there's a host of studies out there that now show that doing exercise turns down the inflammatory response quite a bit, especially as we age. Older people who are active physically have a lower inflammatory state than do older people who don't. They still have an appropriate inflammatory response when necessary, but they're not in this constant heightened inflammatory state the way a lot of older individuals are just by nature of the fact that they're older. Now, for younger endurance athletes, they aren't necessarily in an inflammatory state most of the time. And therefore, the inflammatory response that they're going to have tends to be more normal. And we don't really need to concern ourselves with it so much. And I'll give you a great example of where that has been shown to actually um, be, be the case in practical form. So um, the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications such as ibuprofen or naproxen or aspirin even, that kind of thing. Those medications are incredibly powerful medications in interrupting the inflammatory response. And when used by older individuals, and here I'm talking about people in their late 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond. When those kinds of medications are used in those in that setting, it interferes with the inflammatory response and actually enhances the physical response to exercise. So if an individual who is in their 60s, goes out for a long run and takes an ibuprofen after their run, they will actually see an improved benefit in their muscles because we know that in older individuals, the inflammatory response is quite detrimental to muscle conditioning. Whereas in old, in younger people, and there are studies to support this, in younger people, the use of ibuprofen and other types of anti-inflammatory drugs is actually very much counterproductive to training. So somebody who is in their 20s, 30s, or 40s who goes out for a long run and then takes an ibuprofen either before, during, or after their exercise actually interferes with the kinds of remodeling that happens within the proteins of their muscles and actually is it's detrimental to their training. So the inflammatory state is much more important in older individuals. That's that, that what I was referring to, that inflammaging. Whereas in younger individuals, the inflammatory response seems to be much healthier and is more important for exercise. Because when you go out for that long run and you do some, you're trying to overextend yourself, do a little bit of damage to your muscles, and then rebuild your muscles, you need the inflammatory response 
in your younger years to actually benefit. But if you interfere with the inflammatory response in your younger years, you're not going to get that benefit. But interfering with the inflammatory response when you're older actually may be beneficial. That, however, is not taking into account some of the dangerous potential side effects of these medications, which we can talk about later. Or now. <laughs> I guess I guess I, I well, that I mean, was like define older athlete, younger athlete. Like is there is the there cutoff those, Yeah, the cutoff is the, the cutoff is late fifties. I mean I mean it's not it's not like there's an absolute number, but all the studies that I saw, so I found a really good study that looked at analgesic and anti inflammatory drugs in sports, implications for exercise performance and training adaptations, and this is from two thousand eighteen. And there are other studies that have done similar research in athletes in their 20s and 30s. And these studies very clearly show that taking anti-inflammatory medications interfered with the positive adaptations associated with training. Oh and my then, God, when and, I think of the amount of ibuprofen I pounded as an Olympic rower in my early 20s, yeah, <laughs> oh, right. the damage. <laughs> but then okay. another study, another study that came out just this year Controlling inflammation improves aging skeletal muscle health. That's from 2023 in Exercise and Sports Science, Sports Sciences Reviews. This one looked at older individuals in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and very clearly did a nice job of, of describing some of the biochemical and the physiology and really tied the same pathway that ibuprofen interferes with as the pathway that is detrimental for older individuals' muscle health. And interfering with it actually seems to be beneficial for training. Now, I am not advocating that older people take NSAIDs. And the reason for that is because NSAIDs definitely have some negative effects. NSAIDs have been shown to be associated with higher incidences of heart attack and stroke. They are associated with gastrointestinal bleeding because they cause ulcers and gastritis. And most importantly for us, especially in longer events, they can be associated with acute renal injury. And you have to be sure that you stay hydrated. And I, too often I see athletes will come through special needs at like an Ironman and grab a, a couple of ibuprofen thinking, oh, it's going to keep me from getting sore. I'm going to be able to push through and I'm going to be better off this way. But in reality, they're dehydrated at that point and it may actually lead them to to get into trouble with potential for renal injury. And there was a really good study on this, ibuprofen use endotoxemia, inflammation, and plasma cytokines during ultramarathon competition. I know that's a, a lengthy title. And I always joke about how some of these authors need to go to a title writing school that these authors <laughs> did not go to that school. Right. Anyways, they looked at 54, um, 54 men and women who were doing an ultramarathon, and it was self-selected. Uh, it was doing the Western States Endurance Ultramarathon, and it was a little bit self-selected. It wasn't a randomized trial by any means, but they compared those runners who used ibuprofen with those who did not, and it turned out that the ones who used – there was no difference between the ones who used and the ones who didn't in terms of the level of inflammatory markers in their blood and, on top of that, how they actually felt. So the people using the ibuprofen were using it thinking that it was giving them some kind of benefit that they wouldn't feel as much pain, they'd be able to run better. And in the end, they were all self-reporting exactly the same amounts of discomfort. So it kind of flies in the face of why a lot of people use these medications during a race. And 
I think that these medications are for the most part pretty safe after a race to help with some of the delayed onset muscle soreness. But if you don't need them, if you can avoid taking them, it's always best to try and avoid it. Doesn't the, doesn't the long-term use of ibuprofen also weaken tendons? I read that somewhere too. Is that fallacy? Yeah, no, I'm not familiar with that. There are some antibiotics that can definitely. So hyperfloxacin is notorious for causing Achilles tendon rupture. And there are other antibiotics that have been associated with tendon issues. I'm okay. not familiar with ibuprofen having that same potential problem, but that doesn't mean it's not true. I just, it's not something I've come across. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay, so the net net of all of that <laughs> is if you are sort of under your mid 50s, then you might want to think twice about using um, medications like, or over the counter medications like, you know, ibuprofen or um, Advil to address inflammation. But if you are over sort of your mid 50s, it actually helps to interrupt that process. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of a tricky thing, right? I don't really know how to advise people because there are these very real side effects that are potentially much more dangerous than any benefits you're going to get out of using them to help your muscle health. The reality is, is that exercise alone seems to be very helpful for managing the inflammatory state in people who are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And so the use of anti-inflammatory medications on top of that, it's not clear how much you're really getting out of it. Yes, it's true. There seems to be some, some theoretical reasons and also some evidence that using NSAIDs in those age groups may actually help with enhancing muscle adaptation to exercise, but I'm not entirely sure because there's no data on performance, whether or not it translates into, into better performance. So I, I personally would say just do the exercise to control inflammaging and avoid the medications themselves. But for younger people in their thirties, forties, twenties, whatever, there definitely, there is a good reason to avoid using anti-inflammatory medications, unless you're taking it because, you know, I mean, listen, if you've got a headache, if, if you sure. have an acute injury and you want to manage that, the pain from that injury, then by all means, that, that makes a lot of sense. Can, can you talk a little bit about, you know, I think when people think of inflammation, they think of, again, what they can see, the rolled ankle, the swollen knee, you know, that type of thing. Um, but I think that, you know, what we're really focusing on here is inflammation, which is internal, which we don't necessarily see. But can you just spend a minute explaining why that is, has a negative impact on our performance as athletes? It's kind of hard. So when your inflammatory response is kind of ramped up, it is a big sink for your metabolism. So it's demanding a lot of calories. It's diverting a lot of your metabolic energy and it's diverting a lot of your physiologic resources. So that's why when you're sick, you feel like crap. You don't want to exercise. You're not able to perform at your best. That's the inflammatory response, basically commandeering most of your metabolism and releasing a lot of cytokines that I like to refer to as evil humors that, that are really making you not feel at your best and not able to perform. Well, if you're in a heightened inflammatory state for whatever reason, as you said, that internal milieu is in this inflammatory state, you have this continuous circulating higher levels of evil humors. And they're making you 
off your game. They are keeping your metabolic rate a little bit higher and, and therefore, you know, higher demand for calories, calories that are being used by systems that are not helping you with your performance. And so it's just a a general deterioration. It's like, it's basically your car is not running in the most optimal state. The engine is not running in the best state. It's running hot. And it's the exact same thing here. If your inflammatory state is, is high, then you are just not primed to be able to perform your best in endurance sport. That makes perfect sense. That's great. Okay. So we know that exercise in general helps reduce the inflammatory state in sort of normal humans, correct? We know that we've understand a little bit more about the effect or impact negative or positive that um, NSAIDs can have on that. What else can we do to sort of reduce the overall inflammatory state within our bodies when we can't see it day by day? Maybe we can feel it, but we can't sort of see, oh, my ankle is going down, right? Because that's not really what we're talking about here. What else can we do? Well, there's been a lot talked about and a lot written about anti-inflammatory diets. And that's something that I have kind of stayed away from personally because I've just not really been a huge proponent. They strike me as a little bit of faddish. But I was talking with a good friend today, Alex Larson, who has been a guest on this podcast many times. She's a nutritionist. And and we were chatting about that today. I kind of wanted to get her feeling on this. And 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 what she said, I think, resonates with me. And, and basically, she said, look, if you're going to eat healthy foods, and you're going to stay away from refined sugars and all the processed things that 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 are that make up so much of the Western diet, then you're naturally going to be getting an anti-inflammatory kind of diet. And basically, an anti-inflammatory diet is just eating good foods, making choices of good foods. And when put that way, that makes a lot of sense. We know that eating right has important longevity and morbidity kinds of consequences. And so I I decided earlier today, I went in a little bit of a deep dive into the literature, the medical literature to see what I could find. So the first thing is, is what do we mean by an anti-inflammatory diet? Well, it's actually pretty simple. It's a balanced diet with whole grains that are high in fibers, polyphenol rich vegetables, and omega-3 fatty acid rich foods. That's it. So when we think about Whole grains, high in fibers. Well, we're talking about breads and cereals that, that are, you know, with, with whole grains. Polyphenol rich vegetables are going to be your vegetables that are brightly colored greens and oranges and yellows and omega three fatty acid rich foods that are going to be nuts and fish. Yep. Staying away from the, the things basically don't go keto once again, <laughs> <laughs> once again, right? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, these are, this is kind of makes sense. This is the Mediterranean diet, essentially. The Mediterranean diet has for many, many decades been recognized as the healthiest diet out there, the one associated with the best effects on both long-term health, but also longevity. And that's exactly what this is. The available evidence indicates that the consumption of vegetables and fruit or macro and micronutrients that are high in polyunsaturated fatty acids that have flavonoids, vitamin C and E have been shown to reduce systemic inflammation, whereas 
those diets that have a lot of saturated fatty acids that have a high glycemic index carbohydrates. So basically red meat, refined sugars, and then any high dietary N6 to N3 polyunsaturated fatty acids. I, I'm not even going to go there because I don't even know what that means. Those will increase the level of pro-inflammatory cytokines and put you in this inflammatory state. So again, you can choose to eat a good, healthy diet that will be anti-inflammatory. The question then becomes, okay, what does it mean? Well, when I looked at the literature, there is a bunch of evidence that all kinds of suggests with a little bit of hand waving. And if you squint your eyes a little bit, that eating an anti-inflammatory diet can be good for you in terms of decreasing certain types of diseases. There seems to be no question that anti-inflammatory diets are great for managing inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, which makes a ton of sense. Both of those are inflammatory diseases at the point of contact with your food. So eating an anti-inflammatory diet decreases inflammation in the gut, control your IBD. That makes sense. But I found evidence that depression seems to have a, a link to inflammation, that um, various types of arthritis, like osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, also seem to benefit. Again, seem to. The benefits seem to be marginal and not consistent across studies. But at the end of the day, if it just comes down to eating right and not choosing to have a lot of refined foods and a lot of high-fat red meat in your diet, I don't have a problem with that because if there's even the hint of, of it helping, why not? The, the only other thing that I would say about the anti-inflammatory diet that I think is worth mentioning is that um, there was some evidence that suggested in the past that the omega-3 fatty acids specifically were good for heart health. And the most recent evidence that, come, that has come out on that was a gigantic study that seemed to suggest that that was not the case. And the only reason I bring that up is because omega-3 fatty acids are sold as supplements and they're very expensive supplements. And for a long time, they were promoted as a heart healthy supplement and you should be taking this and blah, blah, blah. But the most recent, fairly large study suggested that, you know what, probably not worth it. So anybody who's taking these, like they, they certainly don't hurt. They don't seem to be in any way detrimental, but for the price that you're paying for them, they don't seem to actually be that much of a benefit to them. And you're probably better off just getting your omega-3s in nuts and fish and Whatever. Yeah, stick to the tuna fish and sardines. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think actually tuna might not be one of them. I think it's 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 salmon, sardines, salmon for anchovies. sure, sardines, anchovies. Yeah, salmon, it's, it, there's yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yep. Well, right, so, the, so the burger, fries, beer, and ice cream I had after a mountain bike ride today probably was not part of the anti-inflammatory bucket of foods. We'll, we'll keep it, that. In. It probably wasn't, but you know what? You, you offset it with your exercise. And, and as I, as I have said many times and will continue to say forever, life is about living and we're here to enjoy the time that we have. And I think that one of the greatest enjoyments that we have is eating. And I think that we should always remember that we have to get joy from eating. And if, if we get joy from eating that kind of meal once in a while, that's great. We just probably don't want to be doing it every day. Every night. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, Juliet, this has been a great conversation. I, I hope we didn't get 
I hope we didn't lose too many people because I know inflammation is a really complicated subject and it's one that I still struggle with even now, 20 something years into my practice. Was it something that made sense to you? And and do you feel like your question's been answered? Yeah, no, for sure it did. And I think it's helpful to think of inflammation as something we can't always see too, right? I mean, I think it's very easy to address the obvious, but when you think of inflammation happening internally on a daily basis, caused by a whole bunch of factors, which has nothing to do with our training. Like that's a really interesting way or good way to think about it when we look at the bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. And important, especially to think about inflammaging and the importance again of staying active into your later stages of life to control that. Well, um, that's what we have for you today for the medical mailbag. If you have questions that you'd like to hear us discuss on the podcast, I hope that you'll send it to me. You can email me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or you could submit them in the private Facebook group for the TriDoc podcast. Find the group by searching for it on that platform. Answers the three simple questions. I'll grant you access. You can join the conversation there and submit your questions. Juliet, thank you so much once again. I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Jeff. Have a great couple weeks. My guest on the podcast today is Canadian professional triathlete Jackson Laundrie. Originally from Belleville, Ontario, Jackson took up triathlon while studying at the University of Guelph in Guelph, Ontario. Since turning professional in 2017, he's had four victories and almost 20 podium finishes on the circuit, including third place at all of Oceanside, St. George, and Florida Gulf Coast just in the last few weeks against very, very strong fields. When he's not training or racing, Jackson works with his real triathlon squad that includes Tamara Jewett, another Canadian success story, and helps put out the Real Triathlon podcast. But today, I've managed to get him to slow down just a little bit to join me on the TriDoc podcast. Welcome, Jackson. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Well, after the recent Colin Chartier positive test for EPO, I I thought there was a lot of hyperbole and honestly, some overwrought emotional stuff put out there. And then about a week after the fact, you put out this really well thought out, incredibly sensible video on your YouTube channel. And I'm going to link to that in the show notes. And in it, you made a lot of great points and some suggestions for how to get ahead of this kind of thing. Can you tell me what led you to do that? And why do you think that the reaction among pros to the positive test was as emphatic as it was? Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, I, this is obviously something that matters a lot to me as someone who does this just for purely seeing how can I, how good can I get at this and how can I push myself to be as good as I can and, and to really achieve that. I sent in a sense for myself when I'm done with this career, I want to be able to know, like I did the very best I could. And that was what I could do. That was the best that I could do with my own physiology, with just doing it all right. And all the little things I can do. Right. And then when somebody comes out that it's, they've been cheating and, it's like, you can't really, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine being able to compete with people who cheat because of the incredibly powerful effects of EPO of external sources of EPO in the, in the body. It's, it's not like we're talking about tiny little differences here. Like they can make enormous differences in your performance and your ability to train hard. And when I'm doing everything I can to get 0.1%, and these guys are boosting their EPO and probably boosting their red blood cells by like 10%. It's not necessarily, it's just discouraging in a sense. And you, you got to try to find a way to stay motivated. And for me to do that, I 
kind of the best thing I could do is think of ways that we could actually catch more people and to try to understand what's going on. So I kind of put that together after a few days of thinking about things and doing some research. And then even after I put the video out, I, I kept doing research and like some learn more and learn, learned that specifically the one thing I referred to in the video with how the glow time for EPO is very short. It seems to be longer now. They seem to be able to test it with a higher, with more sensitivity so they can actually catch people after more than two days still. But at the same time with the frequency of testing and the fact that you can just skip a test and not get a positive result. And people would do that, probably will do that selectively to protect themselves if they're cheating. It's pretty, it's still, it's still possibly people are avoiding tests, not to mention going down the rabbit hole of like what else is out there that people are using. Maybe they can't even detect yet, or maybe, yeah, they don't even know about it yet. So it's not even illegal yet, like things like that. So anyway, it was good they caught someone. And, but then you, of course you have suspicions that other people are probably doing it. And you just hope that whoever's doing these things is going to get caught and that justice will come eventually. Well, I guess it gets to the idea that doping is not just, there's not just the ability to, to get the doping organized, but there's also the wiliness and avoiding getting caught that, that to me seems to be the whole other thing. And is there really this perception among the pros that nobody's doping? Because I got to say age groupers, we feel like doping is rife in the age group ranks, certainly in the older male groups. And I, I guess I, I was so surprised at, at at how the reactions were so emotional amongst the pros because I kind of, me and some other friends, we were like, do they really think the sport is clean? Because that would be unusual because no sport seems to be immune from this. Yeah, I can't really speak for anybody else, but I I would have never bet – that zero people were doping. I know for sure that there's probably there's I can't say for sure, but I know that there's a really high chance that some people are doping. I still think I did think, and I still think that it's a relatively low percentage of triathlete of pro triathletes. And there's a few reasons for that. One, the payoff in triathlon isn't that high. So I, from what I've heard, this stuff's really expensive. And most of us come from like age group backgrounds and we're like, I just want to see how good I can get. I don't really care if I'm not making much money for a while. I'm just going to try to do this and do it for all the right reasons. And for those reasons, I think most people are probably clean because if, if you're considering doping, then you're not really just doing it to see how good you can get anymore on your own. So that's why I think most people are clean. Obviously there's different cultures and different things. I know like a lot of runners, for example, who get, who've tested positive for performance enhancing drugs from, from countries that don't have a lot of opportunity for them. The stakes are a lot higher where if you're not making money as a professional athlete, as like a world-class runner, perhaps you don't really have a good source of income otherwise. Whereas at least for those of us in Canada and probably mostly a lot of other developed nations, if you quit triathlon, we all, most of us are pretty educated. Most of us would have good opportunities for income otherwise. So I think most people would sooner be like, I'm just going to retire from triathlon, do something else than they would consider doping. I hope at least, but you still, there's always, people are going to have that temptation at the highest level. And when you want to be the best in the world. And I always kind of have had suspicions of certain people and like, I would never call anyone out specifically because I have no proof and whatnot, but Let's just say if certain people get get caught doping, I there's quite a few of them that I wouldn't be shocked at all. 
I think that's a, an excellent point that you make about the fact that the stakes are lower in triathlon in general and therefore less motivation to, to start doing that. With that said, you made a point in your video, and you weren't the only one to say this. I know Ben Hoffman said this as well. The idea that athletes who get caught using banned substances, maybe it would be a, a good thing to have them pay restitution of some sort. And I really like that idea. I wonder if you've thought at all about how it would work in practical terms. I'm interested, like, how far back, for example, would that go if somebody got a positive test in January, would they have to pay back the last year, the last several years, a certain number of events? What if a doper won who hadn't yet won anything? Would they be forced to pay a, a financial penalty? Have you thought about that kind of thing? Or is it just the idea that if you've had winnings, you should pay back? Yeah, I think it could be pretty easily implemented. I think, yeah, I think it's it'd be tough to charge someone who doesn't have any winnings in, in terms of money, perhaps sponsors could put in contracts that, that say they'd have to repay if they ever test positive or something like that. But I think the race organizations could pretty quickly make rules of like, if you test positive, you must repay prize money previous by this many months. And let's just, whatever it is, if, if it's known ahead of time, we all sign contracts with the PTO, for example, the PTO could put it in their contract. As far as I know, the, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know the legality on this. But if we sign that says if I test positive and it'd be I in my opinion, you can't just treat all performance enhancing drugs on the same level. So let's say somebody does EPO or testosterone or some of these drugs that are like extremely blatant. It's like you're definitely trying to cheat versus like, I don't know, too much THC above the limit during a race. Okay, those two things shouldn't be on the same level. So anyways, let's just say let's put things as like a class one highest level of cheating EPO, et cetera, depending on what sport you're in. But for triathlon, let's say EPO is like the highest level. If you're, if you get found with that 24 months previous to that positive test, you have to repay. And even if you weren't pot, even if you didn't test positive at those times, you signed that said, you knew if you do that, you're sacrificing previous gains. And so that would, because in my opinion, there's just not enough consequence because you can dope as much as you want and keep winning and keep winning. And as once you test positive, if they don't have proof that you doped previously, you never have to give anything back. And so there's no downside. If someone's like, I don't really like this sport. I'm just doing it to make money. I'm doing it to be as good as I can. I'm going to dope as long as I can, make as much money as I can. And once I get caught, whatever, I'll just quit and take my winnings and leave. And I don't know if that's a case with Colin or not. I don't know when he started. But if they had those penalties in place, he and let's say he wasn't doping at the US Open when he won, if they had those previous penalties in place where if he gets caught, he'd have to give it back. He probably wouldn't have started doping in the first place. So anyway, I think that would be a good preventative measure just with higher stakes. Yeah, I like it. I I think it makes a lot of sense. And obviously there'd have to be buy-in across the professional ranks. Although if the organizations themselves were instituting that as a known clause in a contract, it'd be pretty hard for pros to say no. I think it's great. The other thing you talked about is the duration of the penalty. And I know, again, others have mentioned this as well. There were ideas that this should be met the first time lifetime ban. Now, I, I am not a religious person by any means, but as a society, I wonder shouldn't we have the capacity to forgive and allow people to atone for their mistakes? The other side of the argument is that the threat of these kinds of very grave punishments will change behaviors. But we know that that's not necessarily the case. If they did, the United States would have almost no murder since it executes the largest number of people for murder and has the death penalty on the books since forever. So the severity of the 
penalty doesn't necessarily deter the crime. And this notion that should we forgive? I'm just curious how you put that together with the idea of a lifetime ban. Yeah, it's a tough one. I don't think four years is enough, maybe not lifetime. But the other thing that sort of comes into play is that if you build your engine up over the course of years using drugs and then you stop, how long do those benefits last? It could be, it may last decades. If you've got that, if you build your aerobic engine up to such a high level for a decade, well, who's to say that four years later, all that training, it's accumulative, right? It's cumulative over the, over that time frame. So that's the one piece, but also, yeah, I mean, perhaps I, I certainly see an argument for allowing people to have retribution and to be able to come back and do things differently and, and whatnot. I still just don't think four years is enough for, for the types of drugs we're seeing. Like if someone gets caught and I guess perhaps, you know, there's an argument for changing the penalty based on your age. I don't know. Like if someone's 20 and they get caught, well, they, four years later, who, who really cares? Like they're still 24. They still have up to two decades in the sport. Right. So I I don't know how that would look, but I don't think four years is enough for people who, who take like the most blatant cheating drugs, maybe not lifetime, but I think at least six, eight years. And it's not necessarily the penalty. It's not necessarily to deter from doing it that it would maybe make people less likely to do it. But I think just not having those people compete for that time and and repeat offenders, like they're going to be tested more for sure, but they're they're obviously going to be a higher chance of repeating if you've already done it. So I don't know. It's a tough, it's a tough topic and I see things on either side, but I do know that it's been four years for ages ages and ages and ages. And prior to that, it continually sort of went up every few years. People decided this isn't enough. This isn't enough. And then it got to four and it hasn't changed since then. And maybe that's because it's the right amount, or maybe it's because it just hasn't been updated to what people think would be fair. Yep. Very good points and very, very fair points. I think we're obviously going to be speaking a lot more about this topic in the, the months to come. And hopefully we won't be talking about more positive tests, at least for a little while. Before all of this news broke, you and I exchanged emails on com- something completely different. We talked about fad diets and about how age group athletes tend to latch on to these things and how maybe that isn't the best way to go. I think it's incredibly timely because we've seen a really high profile example of this in Sam Long. Sam, who showed up at Oceanside with a new coach and a new diet, uh, uh, basically abstaining from carbohydrates, which seemed a little foolhardy and in the end played out in his result at Oceanside. But then he dispensed with that coach, got back onto a a little more sensible diet and has been lights out at the following two races. What do you think about the fact that athletes, especially in the age group ranks are, are so easily convinced to, to, to get onto these kinds of, I don't know, weird nutrition strategies, thinking that under fueling is going to somehow make them faster or fueling with something other than the preferred fuel. How do you counsel athletes on this? Yeah, it's nutrition is probably the most talked about topic among age group athletes, just partly because there's so many different things you can do. And there's, there's, there's so many different theories and it's hard to really do good studies on nutrition because the control variables are just so hard to control. That being said, the research that's there, it, there is pretty good research for during exercise. Like it's pretty easy to control what you take in while you're exercising before you're exercising and and measure that. And that's 
unanimous that carbohydrates are going to be your best source of fuel, regardless of even regardless, even of intensity, like even if you're at a lower intensity, it's going to be good to take in carbohydrates. But yeah, I think the main thing that I caution people of who are endurance athletes, I wouldn't really want to give too much advice for non-endurance athletes because it's not my area of expertise, but it's, it's the calorie balance is hard to keep up with as an endurance athlete. And even if you're training at a relatively recreational level of like something like eight hours a week, that's still a lot of calories you're burning compared to the norm, the average person. Like according to, for just health purposes, a two and a half, three hours a week of exercise is considered pretty good. Well, if you're doing eight and a lot of that's pretty high intensity, you're burning a ton of calories. And if you try to restrict carbs, you're just going to, you're going to risk being at a, an energy deficit and you could develop relative energy deficiency syndrome and different things like that. Not to mention a lot of us are training way more than eight hours a week. So it's just the potential alleged, I'll say benefits of like a low carb diet. They're just the, the in theory, it sounds good, but in practice, it doesn't really, hasn't really been shown to make much of a difference and the risks are so high. So even like, even if it might work for you, the downsides would probably outweigh the upsides of it. And so I just, I never encourage people to try something low carb outside of that. I think for general nutrition, a lot of it is, is knowing what works for you, like finding foods. Like for, for years, I just didn't really pay attention to this type of stuff. And I'd be like, Oh, I'll eat foods that are considered healthy. Like try to eat this amount of vegetables and this and that. And I wouldn't really pay attention to specific foods, but just in the last couple of years, I'm like, I've kind of like changed my approach to being like, okay, every time I have like a meal, I'm going to write down or remember what I ate. And then I'm going to assess how I felt. And sometimes I'd be like, geez, my stomach doesn't feel that great. My gut is like all out of whack. And then I started figuring out which foods are just causing me problems. And it's basic things like for me, garlic destroys my, like, I feel terrible after I eat garlic. Oh my God. I, I feel so bad for you. I know. Cause it's delicious, right? <laughs> it's a joy. So I kept yeah. being like, okay, maybe it's tomato that's doing it. No, it's not that. Once I remove garlic, I literally like, I would have like terrible bloating after meals, gas, all the terrible things you don't want totally gone. So it's like pay attention to yourself and you can do these sort of genetic tests for, I don't know how good they are, but I bet you could just figure it all out on your own with, with just keeping track. And so for me that that's been good, but yeah, definitely low carb is maybe a good diet for people who don't do a ton of endurance activity, but for otherwise I'd be really careful with it. Yeah, I've had several nutritionists on the program and everybody bangs on the same drum. They all say exactly what you did, which is if you want to train hard and you want to train well, you have to be fueled to do it. And I think what a lot of people don't also factor into this equation is that as you became more, as you become more fit, as you lean out a little bit from becoming more fit, your metabolic rate goes up. And so you're consuming more calories even when you're not exercising. And if you're not feeding your body enough to keep your body well fueled, you start auto metabolizing, you start breaking down your own muscle. And before you know it, you lose the ability not just to train, but the ability to get better. And that's where that whole relative energy deficiency comes in and what you were talking about much more severe in women because of the issues related to bone health. But men can suffer from this as well with an inability to train and with losses in with sleep disturbances and mood disturbances. So it, it's a real serious issue. And and 
yeah, I, I, like you said, I, I'm just curious in the pro ranks when somebody like as high profile as Sam Long is very public about how they're changing their diet. Is that something that gets talked a lot about? I don't think too many people would talk to him about it because they're kind of like, okay, here's a chance where we might be able to beat Sam before he figures this out, (laughs) which is literally, that's the only conversation I had with a friend of mine who's a pro. And I said, okay, well, he's going to be easier to beat now. And then I I did beat him in Oceanside. And, and then of course he goes back to his normal diet and he absolutely destroys St. George and Gulf coast. But it's 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 no surprise, and good on him for recognizing that this wasn't working for him pretty quickly. I, I don't know exactly what he was doing because I didn't pay too close of attention, but I know at least at times he was restricting carbs. And then in the pro panel before before St. George, he was saying, well, I'm back on my normal nutrition plan of carbs are king. And when he said that, I was like, okay, now he's going to be harder to beat. And lo and behold, he was harder to beat, so... Yeah, it, most pros don't do this. Like a lot of them will try it here and there, and nobody ever sticks with it because it just doesn't work. Yeah, well, I think that right there is the nail in the coffin. I've I've said that many many times about these low carb things, and yeah, there's still people out there that will not be convinced otherwise, and that's fine. Like you said, if if they show up and they're in my age group, I'm like, okay, I'll see you at the finish. <laughs> we'll talk about it then. Tell me about real the real triathlon squad. That's a group of, of pros, among which is, include Nick Chase and Tamara Jewett. Tell me about that group that you've got together and what you guys are doing. Yeah, so a few years ago, well, it started with we we developed the Real Triathlon podcast, which is still going on. We started this just before COVID hit. As as it turned out, it sort of ended up starting as COVID was starting. But that ended up being a good time for us to bang out a bunch of episodes while we're sitting around with nothing to do. And that was started by myself, Nick Chase, and Garrick Lowen. And the three of us are still hosts on that podcast. And then after a year of doing that, we kind of started saying, hey, guys, like, why don't we start our own team? We see these Team BMC, Team Erdinger, Team PVAG. There's the Bahrain 13 team. And we thought we could do something like this, but have it owned and managed by the athletes. And then I think it would do a few things. One thing is if you kind of get it together with a group and you have some of the same, a lot of the same sponsors supporting the whole team, it's for one thing, it's fun. You're, you go to races together, you hang out together. It generates more opportunities for fun content for people to follow and whatnot. But also it takes some of the pressure off. Like we've talked about this where like four of us will go to a race and inevitably it's almost impossible for all four to have a great day. And then, but if your sponsors are sort of invested in this team and two people have a good day, well, they're still getting great exposure and the people who don't have as great of a day don't feel that sort of pressure. And there's always pressure to perform as a pro athlete. But when you kind of have that group around you supporting you, it just sort of takes some of that off. So yeah, we started that team, I believe it's 2021. And since then, it's just been growing in terms of what we can offer. Like we've got a YouTube now. Most of this stuff is managed by Nick Chase, who he took over kind of the, the full team management. I was involved in the beginning and sort of now I'm more just on the athlete side and he's managing the sponsors and the content and a lot of the negotiations. And then we have a team manager, Adam Meredith, or he's like a head of growth and development. So he's helping with, we have our age group squad now. So that's been a really good thing to develop for this year where now we have a newsletter that goes out and the age group squad, you guys just, they have access to a ton of discounts and we're going to be doing camps at some point just different ways that they can sort of be involved with us. And 
get benefits free to join and you can be a part of any other clubs you want. You can still join ours. So I think it's moving in a great direction. And, and the main change for this year has been sort of investing more into our own brand, our own content and sort of pushing that as like our main focus. Whereas before we kind of really focused on being funded by sponsors and then a lot of our content was just promoting them and it was hard to ju- it was hard to promote ourselves when we had all these obligations with sponsors. And now it's like we have sponsors that support us that are fantastic and that want us to promote ourselves and they just want to be a part of that journey. And of course, we we support them also with content. But the main thing is kind of growing our own brand. So, yeah, it's been a good year. It's been an exciting year and anybody can join. And yeah, it's been it's, it's going in a good direction and it'll be cool to see where it goes. It looks like hopefully... There's going to be a short course component to the team as well on the pro side, which will be great to branch into that. And yeah, right now the pro squad is Nick Chase, myself, Tamara Jewett, Leslie Smith, Lisa Bacaris, Mark Dubrick, like Garrick Lowen, and Nicole Falcaro. So we have eight, eight of us. And that's been growing too, because I think we started with five or six. So yeah, that's great. That's great. So you've had a just a tremendous start to the year. Congratulations Thank again. You. And uh, what's the f- rest of the season look like for you? Obviously, you're going to Finland, but do you have anything before that? Yeah, I'll be going to Ironman 70.3 Mont Tremblant, which is June 25th. I'm sure you're well aware of that race and a lot of uh, probably you've probably done it. I'm actually doing it for the first oh, time. Wow. I, I for years and years I've tried to get there and it's just not worked and I'm finally going to be there. So I'll be excited to see. Nice. It. That's a great one. Fully closed roads, I believe, which after Gulf Coast is now a higher, higher priority for me because it's that was sketchy. But in any case, yeah, it's a beautiful course, beautiful venue. And the community really supports it, which is great. But that'll be my probably fifth time racing there, at least, maybe sixth. And I've got a win there. I have a third. I have a bunch of fourths. So I I, I got third there last year, and I kind of got away with one where I like wasn't feeling that great. And I managed to just get by a friend of mine, Cody Beals, in the last five 600 meters to take third. But I'm hoping to have a much better day there. And then 70 point or sorry, PTO US Open after that, which is early August. And then three weeks after that, it'll be 70.3 Worlds in Finland. So that's kind of my next block. And then I haven't really been able to plan beyond that too much because there's things up in the air with when is Collins Cup going to be? Am I going to qualify? What other races are going to be doable? So for now, that's just kind of where I'm sitting. And I'm curious, do you have any designs on going to the full distance? at some point yeah it's on the radar for sure i've considered possibly doing one this year later in the year i have done one full in 2021 in mallorca which went okay but i wasn't really prepared for it and so i couldn't have really expected much better but yeah i it's tough right now because a full it's a big opportunity cost to go and do a full it, it takes in terms of the specific training you have to do the the taper, the recovery, it, it definitely takes up, I think, at least as much resources as doing two halves, in my opinion. And two halves, I can, if I go to two halves and have an average day of both, I can pretty much count on getting at least one podium. And so it's just hard to, if I, if I was 
name a top pro, Jan Ferdino, and had hundreds of thousands in just a guessing hundreds of thousands in sponsor income every year, I could afford to just pick what I feel like doing. But also it's a business and I have to make a living. I've got a mortgage and my wife and I bought a house in 2020 and we got a, there's real life expenses. So it's tough to take those risks at times. So that my goal was sort of to have a good start to the season in order to be able to sort of free myself up for later in the year. And I have been able to do that. So if I have another good day at Tromla, then I can sort of start looking at things a little bit more based on what I feel like doing and what might be better for two years down the road, in which case I may choose a full. Now, that being said, I have looked at the schedule and there's just not a lot of full options later in the year. There's there's Florida, which is at the same venue as Panama City Beach was, and I don't want to go there. Like It's not a safe course, in my opinion. There's way too much traffic that's allowed to access the road. There's no closed roads. It's just not a good environment for a race, in my opinion, for pros who are going 30 miles an hour and the cars aren't expecting that. So probably we don't want to do that one. And then the only other ones at that time of year seem to be like over in Europe. So either I might be going pretty far or I might be waiting another year until there's a bit of a more convenient option for me. Can I ask, it's, it's interesting insight to the thought process that goes into this, because obviously for age groupers, it's a very different calculus. For us, it's, do we have the time to train? Is it high on the list of things that we want to accomplish? And for you, as you said, it's a business. What are some of the other things that go into that calculus of deciding? I mean, obviously, there, it has to fit your schedule. You have to think about the recovery time. Do you we're always, I coach athletes and I'm always telling them, forget about the start list. You just show up and do your thing. You, I imagine, have to think about the start list. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I've, a lot of guys do and I don't blame them for it. I've never based a race off of who's going to be there, mainly because it's also not reliable. Like inevitably some guys won't show up. Somebody will be added late. Like it's just, it's not necessarily going to be what you expect. But also for me, the bigger thing is the, course and the environment that it is so i've historically done the best in hillier courses and in part that's probably because a lot of the main competition at least in north america like the really strong bikers and just overall athletes often tend to be a little bit bigger guys like sam long who tend to be very fast on flat bike courses which i'm not like a really small guy by any means but i do a lot better on a hilly course i can keep up better it's just it's just a more beneficial course for me. So I tend to pick hillier courses. And at least lately, it seems I tend to do better in colder conditions, which is a huge part of the reason why I'm deciding to do Finland and not Singapore Asian open for PTO. They're a week apart. Some people might try to do both, but Singapore, you've got probably the hottest race ever. Like it's going to be like 32 and very humid. It's a flat. It's probably going to be flat, really humid. Like, it's just the complete opposite of Finland, which is rolling hills, cool conditions. Those are those are perfect conditions. That's Oceanside's like that, and I've won there and gotten a third. St. George is like that. I always have a good day there. The list goes on and on. So for me, the conditions matter a lot more than the field because there's guys who would probably beat me on a hotter, flatter day, but I would beat every time on a, a, a sort of hilly, cooler conditions. And, and I do okay in the heat, and I don't necessarily totally avoid those races, and I I am planning to sort of do better with heat prep to be able to do well there. Like I did okay in Dallas, but it's your physiology is your physiology in a sense. And if you have a strength, you might as well play to it because why wouldn't you, if you have the option? Absolutely. 
Well said. Well, Jackson, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with me today on the podcast. It's been a really entertaining and great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I wish you nothing but continued success for the rest of the year. It's been exciting to watch you have such great results so far. And hopefully we'll get a chance to meet in Mont Tremblant, where we're both racing just next month. Thank you again, Jackson Laundry, to to take for taking the time to join me on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me and good luck in your prep for Tremblant. We'll see you there. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the TriDoc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private Tridoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDark Podcast Facebook page, TriDark Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDark Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.